Hello, and welcome to Employment Law Legends, Episode 3, Testing Title 7, Griggs vs. Duke Power Company. My name is Paul Rennan. I am an employment and labor law attorney with the law firm of Ogletree Deacons in Houston, Texas. Griggs vs. Duke Power Company did not receive prominent headlines when it was decided in 1971. The New York Times summarized the case in two sentences on page 21. It was completely forgettable. Everyone's attention that day was focused elsewhere, on the war in Vietnam and the upcoming boxing fight of the century between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Even Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger, who wrote the opinion, admitted that the case was a sleeper which did not receive any public attention. On the surface, the opinion looked legally technical. It asked whether a company could unintentionally discriminate against a group of African-American laborers under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act by requiring a high school diploma and general intelligence tests. The Supreme Court found intent was not necessary and seemed to announce a new theory of discrimination based on disparate impact, but nothing seemed too revolutionary at the time. The case has become legend, its impact on American life transformative. It is the most important employment law case of the civil rights era, perhaps more important than Brown v. Board of Education, which integrated public schools. The case turned Title VII from a chisel into a sledgehammer against discriminatory employment practices. We think of discrimination as an intentional wrong. The discriminator treats someone differently because he has a bad motive. He doesn't like someone's race or other protected characteristics. The disparate impact theory turns this world upside down. It ignores intent entirely. Instead, it focuses on consequences. Review any employment policy. See if there is a significant impact on a protected group compared to other groups, and then prohibit that policy if it cannot be justified with business necessity. A mild form of affirmative action, it is a very versatile theory and has been applied to a range of employment practices, from supervisory selection to nepotism, artificial intelligence, and many, many other areas. But where did this theory come from? To learn that, we need to turn back the clock to 1966 and return to the land of Eden. No, not that Eden. Eden, North Carolina. This was not a biblical paradise. Eden lay deep in the Jim Crow South. The small blue-collar town is located in Rockingham County, on North Carolina's northern border in the Piedmont region. The 200-mile Dan River flows to Eden South through dense, tree-lined valleys. The Civil Rights Act had just been passed two years before, in 1964, and had outlawed discrimination in employment. However, North Carolina was still caught in the turbulent winds of the civil rights movement and struggling to overcome racial segregation. Two African-American friends, Willie Boyd and Jay Griggs, were holding a meeting. Both men were active members of the civil rights organization, the NAACP, or the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Jay Griggs was the NAACP's chapter president in Reedsville. Together, the two men had participated in the struggles of the organization to desegregate society, leading sit-ins, and they both understood how the legal system could be used to enact structural change. Willie Boyd was frustrated with his employer, the Duke Power Company. He worked as a janitor at its Dan River steam station. One of Jay Griggs' relatives, Willie Griggs, worked there too. The station went into operation in 1949. Willie Boyd helped build it. Part of Duke Power's $200 million project to revamp its steam facilities in the region, the station converted coal into steam and electrical energy for North Carolina. Although Title VII became effective in July 1965, Willie Boyd's employment circumstances had not changed in any meaningful sense. Like other employers in the South, the workers were still required to use separate locker rooms, drinking facilities, and lavatories. There was also little opportunity for advancement. Although there were dozens of nebulously defined job titles, the workers were grouped into five departments at the station. Operations, maintenance, laboratory and testing, coal handling, and labor. The first three departments, operations, maintenance, and laboratory testing, were known as the inside jobs. Here, the workers looked at shiny dials and gauges all day. They monitored equipment like boilers, turbines, and other equipment, made sure mechanical equipment kept running, and analyzed the coal and boiler water. As you'd expect, everybody wanted these cushy jobs, but these positions were historically reserved for whites. The outside jobs were harder, hotter, and paid much less. The coal handler department weighed the coal and moved it around with heavy equipment, like bulldozers, conveyor belts, and coal crushers. 
Boyd and the other 13 African-American workers were segregated into an all-black labor department, a janitorial position. Now make no mistake about it, the labor department was aptly named. The African-Americans who worked there were responsible for backbreaking labor, cleaning heavy equipment in bathrooms, shoveling coal, collecting garbage, and other manual tasks. They were the lowest paid and had the least desirable positions. While the maximum wages earned by African-Americans working outside was $1.65 per hour, white employees working inside could earn almost twice as much, $3.18 per hour or more. As Robert Samuel Smith describes in his book Race, Labor, and Civil Rights, the racial hierarchy was plain for all to see. Quote, Trains would haul in huge loads of Appalachian coal, rolling along the tracks beside the slow, brown-green rivers of the Dan. White workers would mechanically transfer the freight, adding it to the plant's coal pile that rose higher than any building in this part of the Carolina uplands. Sometimes, dust and grime would clog the claws as they scooped up the lumpy fuel. The janitors were then summoned to help with the filthy work of unclogging the machinery. Only whites, however, were allowed the job title of coal hauler, and only they earned the extra pay. Unquote. Segregation was supposed to be over. Duke Power had issued an order to desegregate its workforce after Title VII became effective in 1965. However, several policies had locked the African-American workers into the Labor Department. Way back in 1955, Duke Power had issued a company policy requiring all new applicants for departments other than the Labor Department to have a high school education. White employees who were hired before 1955 were grandfathered in and permitted to move from lower to higher paying jobs or transfer between departments without a high school education. Long-term African-American workers, like Boyd, however, had been segregated into the Labor Department and weren't offered a similar deal. On July 2, 1965, the very day the Civil Rights Act became effective, Duke Power adopted another hiring requirement, in addition to the high school requirement. Applicants now to all departments except the Labor Department were required to have both a high school diploma and passing scores on two tests, the E.F. Wunderlich Personnel Test and the Bennett Mechanical Comprehension Test. Now, Willie Boyd thought this whole maneuver looked very suspicious. Why would Duke Power adopt testing requirements on the same day that Title VII became effective? Additionally, the test questions just seemed entirely unrelated to their work. The Wunderlich Test was an intelligence test, which had 50 questions to be completed in 12 minutes. Some of the questions were pretty out there. One asked, Print yes or no. Does B.C. mean before Christ? Other questions asked employees to examine a series of cultural proverbs to determine which ones had similar meanings. Some required significant mathematical ability. See if you can answer this one. Quote, In printing an article of 24,000 words, a printer decides to use two sizes of type. Using the larger type, a printed page contains 900 words. Using the smaller type, a page contains 100 words. The article is allotted 21 full pages in a magazine. How many pages must be in the smaller type? Unquote. Bueller? Bueller? As you can see, as a measure of ability to fill manual jobs in an industrial plant, these questions look pretty absurd. Something seemed off. Duke Power's vice president of production, A.C. Thies, would later try to explain that the requirements were added because the company found some high school graduates had insufficient abilities to get promoted as the complexity of the job increased. Thies noted that the requirements were necessary to upgrade the workforces for the atomic age, stating, quote, The nature of our business is becoming more complex all the time. We have got seven or eight computers on order. We are rapidly moving into the nuclear power area with one of our stations, unquote. Duke Power also argued the new requirements were necessary to be in compliance with Title VII. The company ceased segregation and had adopted objective criteria which it hoped would eliminate racial decision-making. Testing and educational requirements were cost-effective ways to judge the merits of applicants and transfers without reference to race. Now, as I've said, Willie Boyd and Jay Griggs kept talking about all of these issues at the Dan River Station, and they weren't buying the company's explanations. Willie Boyd did not have a high school education, and it looked like Duke Power was purposefully trying to put up arbitrary roadblocks to prevent his promotion to the better-paying jobs. He thought the company wanted to keep him frozen in the labor department forever with other African-American workers. Boyd's life had been a hard one. His government and society had not given him a real opportunity to finish high school. He was born in 1922 and was raised as the son of a sharecropper in a society where racial segregation existed in all institutions in North Carolina. 
He was the twelfth of seventeen children born to midwives. His family lived on the edge of poverty in a segregated neighborhood. Boyd has explained his house didn't really have a ceiling and was just a bunch of boards thrown together. A trash dump was fifty yards from his home. His siblings complained that rats would bite their toes at night. This was a very difficult life. I mean, Willie Boyd grew up helping his family grow tobacco and walking behind a mule. The family brought home at maximum eight to ten dollars each month. After his father became sick when he was in 11th grade, Willie Boyd dropped out of high school in order to ensure that the family met its tobacco quota and survived. In 1948, he made his last tobacco crop and took a job constructing the Dan River Station for Duke Power. Boyd was permanently hired into the Labor Department when the station opened in 1952. If he was white, he may have been grandfathered into the higher positions and would not have needed a degree to be promoted within those other departments. But Willie Boyd was black, and this option was closed. Jay Griggs listened intently to Boyd's many complaints about the continuing segregation at the Dan River Station. But unlike other occasions when the men had conversed, Griggs suddenly had enough. Willie Boyd recalls Griggs wagging his index finger into his face and telling him that enough was enough. If Boyd didn't file a discrimination claim, he wasn't going to listen to him anymore. They needed to do something. A plan was soon hatched. Boyd and Griggs went to the home of another Duke Power employee, Clarence Jackson. There they drafted a short petition detailing the many issues they wanted resolved at the plant. On March the 1st, 1966, Boyd took this petition to the segregated locker room and placed it on a bench. All the other African-American laborer employees gathered around. In a scene reminiscent of the Alamo, Boyd signed first, and then he commanded the men to follow. One employee, Lewis Hairston, read the letter and asked, Do we have a complaint? Boyd looked at him and replied that he had had complaints since he got to the plant. All 14 of the African-American workers then signed the letter in an act of resistance. The letter said, quote, We, the following undersigned employees of the Duke Power Steam Plant, have given a number of years of satisfactory service with the company. We, the employees, under the Civil Rights Law of 1964, feel justified in requesting the company for promotion when vacancies occur in the following job classifications, coal handling, shop, storekeeper, and general plan operations, unquote. Now, Things moved very rapidly after the workers signed the locker room petition. At 8 o'clock a.m., the petition was dropped on the desk of the plant superintendent, J. Donald Knight. Knight discovered the petition an hour later. At 10 o'clock a.m., he announced over the intercom that all semi-skilled laborers were to be in his office immediately. When the men arrived, Knight asked what all the commotion was about. Lewis Hairston spoke up for the group and explained they wanted an opportunity and a crack at the better jobs. Knight was courteous but firm. The company would not change its policies. However, he now gave the men the option to take the test in lieu of receiving a high school diploma. They did not need to have both. Although Harrison and Boyd would later attempt to take the test, both men failed to pass. A white employee also failed. As a 1966 EEOC case would show, while 58% of whites performed adequately on the Wonderlick test, only about 6% of African Americans could attain similar scores. There were serious flaws with the tests, which appeared to screen out minorities. The morning after handing over the letter, Duke Power sent a representative to the Dan River Steam Station to try to calm the situation down. It didn't work. Four days later, they had reached an impasse. The men would need to file a lawsuit. As I said earlier, Willie Boyd and Jay Griggs had connections to the NAACP, so they sought help from its Legal Defense and Education Fund, or the LDF for short. The LDF was founded by the legendary African-American attorney Thurgood Marshall, who later became a Supreme Court Justice of the United States. The LDF is most famous for its litigation efforts culminating in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, which held segregated educational facilities were inherently unequal. However, the LDF's efforts did not end with Brown. After the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, the entire organization tripled in size and gathered a vast network of law professors, social scientists, educators, and commercial lawyers. Jack Greenberg, a Jewish attorney from New York, took over the LDF from Thurgood Marshall in 1961 and was largely responsible for this exponential growth. Initially skeptical of the Civil Rights Act, he described it to the Wall Street Journal as a weak, cumbersome, and probably unworkable set of propositions. Not very ringing endorsements, one of the biggest problems was the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the agency responsible for enforcing Title VII. Greenberg and others thought it was a toothless tiger. 
Southern Democrats and conservative Republicans initially did not want any agency at all to enforce Title VII because they thought it would become another administrative octopus squid like the National Labor Relations Board, which governed unionizing. They tried to water the agency's enforcement powers down. The EEOC was also horrifically underfunded and understaffed. Although the Civil Rights Act provided a grace period before it became effective to allow the EEOC to ramp up, President Johnson sat on his hands. He did not appoint any commissioners to run the agency for almost a year until late May 1965, one month before operations began. When the EEOC opened its doors, all it had was a skeleton staff running around in near anarchy. The commissioners had no office space. The EEOC had a smaller budget than the Office of Coal Research. While the EEOC estimated that it would receive 2,000 claims in the first year, it was swamped with over four times that amount. The LDF was partly responsible for this huge flood of charges. It understood that anarchy was also an opportunity. Therefore, it organized an education and outreach team of law students, targeted 10 southern states, and then just began packing and mailing discrimination complaints by the thousands until the EEOC was near collapse from exhaustion. Willie Boyd and the Griggs plaintiffs swept in on this whirlwind of litigation. Jack Greenberg put them in contact with his litigation team, including two other young attorneys, Robert Belton and Julius Chambers. Robert Belton would later become a nationally recognized scholar of employment and civil rights law and a law professor at Vanderbilt University. At this time, though, he had just graduated a year before from Boston University Law School. Robert Belton had grown up going to segregated schools and riding segregated buses, including, coincidentally enough, buses owned by Duke Power. The case was personal to him. He had a long history with the civil rights movement and had been jailed for participating in sit-ins. Julius Chambers was also an energetic attorney who had gained a strong reputation in civil rights work. He had graduated first in his class at the University of North Carolina Law School in 1962 and had been editor-in-chief of the school's law review. He had chosen to intern with the LDF rather than the Justice Department and opened his own law practice in 1964 during the same week that Title VII was passed. The firm would later become one of the first integrated law firms in the South. Deeply involved in civil rights action, his car had been firebombed numerous times. Julius Chambers and Robert Belton assisted the Dan River Station workers in their initial petition to Duke Power. Their case was not unique. Similar pen and paper tests and seniority systems, which seem neutral on their face, had begun popping up all over the country in numerous semi-skilled and blue-collar jobs, including railroads, pulp and paper manufacturing, tobacco, textile, and trucking. The testing industry was exploding. The EEOC initiated its investigation of Duke Power on April the 21st, 1966. Rather than rely on outside counsel for its defense, Duke Power relied on its own corporate team of in-house attorneys, including a young lawyer named George Ferguson. Ferguson had graduated from the University of North Carolina in 1956 and started working with Duke Power in 1962. He was a company man and would remain with Duke Power the rest of his life and retire in 1988. On April the 22nd and 26th, 1966, EEOC investigators toured the Dan River Steam Station and discovered it still had racially segregated facilities. When asked just what was going on, George Ferguson and A.C. Thies explained they did not have a clue about any of this. Later that week, Thies issued a memorandum instructing management to immediately put all the workers in the same locker rooms and that it could no longer permit its African-American employees to occupy different facilities. The company officially desegregated, now for the second time. However, it flatly refused to give African-American workers preferential treatment by removing its educational and testing requirements. There were two main reasons Duke Power did this. First, Title VII clearly forbid a company from intentionally discriminating against employees because of their race or other protected characteristic. Duke Power always maintained that the testing and high school requirements were neutral and had been passed to improve the workforce, not to intentionally discriminate on the basis of race. Robert Belton and the LDF knew this argument presented significant legal challenges. Throughout Title VII, terms like intentional and discrimination were sprinkled everywhere. However, the LDF noted that the term discrimination, whether intentional or not, was never specifically defined. More importantly, there was a special section of Title VII, Section 703, which defined an unlawful employment practice to include limiting, segregating, or classifying employees or applicants in any way which would deprive or tend to deprive them of employment opportunities, 
or otherwise adversely affect their status as an employee because of their race or color. This provision did not include the word intentional or discriminate anywhere and raised the critical issue whether the act required specific intent. Beyond intent, though, George Ferguson and Duke Power also had a second good argument. Congress had provided businesses an explicit right to test their employees. Testing was not a novel issue. It had been big and controversial in congressional debates. Conservative lawmakers like Republican Texas Senator John Tower had been very worried about a previous case, Myart versus Motorola, where a hearing officer had ruled, among other things, that a five-minute written test of verbal and numerical abilities could be discriminatory if it was culturally biased in favor of whites. Senator Tower was vigorously opposed to Title VII and moved swiftly to include a provision to preserve employer prerogatives to issue pen and paper tests to employees. The debates went back and forth, and ultimately, Congress settled on language in the Tower Amendment which allowed an employer to give and act upon the results of a professionally developed ability test, provided that such test, its administration or action upon the results, was not designed, intended, or used to discriminate on the basis of race. But once again, Chambers and Belton thought that a critical term had been left undefined. Just what is a professionally developed ability test? Did such a test need to be related to the specific job? Tests run on a big range, don't they? You have tests which may be useful for showing aptitude to perform certain skill sets. For example, a relevant test for a seamstress may be a sewing exam. A relevant test for a programmer may be an exercise to see if they can write code. But IQ tests are on the other side of the spectrum, aren't they? Is an IQ test relevant for performing manual work? Is the Wonderlick test an appropriate ability test for a coal handler or a plant operator? Did anyone at Duke Power even check to see that it was? The LDF didn't think so, and neither did the EEOC. The Agent's Office of Research and Reports quickly undertook a study of professionally developed ability tests and determined that individuals from culturally disadvantaged backgrounds perform less well on general intelligence tests, on the average, than did applicants from middle-class environments. Minorities and protected groups could be improperly screened out of training programs and excluded from jobs. The EEOC further found that testing procedures could discriminate in employment and promotions as effectively as the once common whites-only or Anglo-only signs. Yikes. The EEOC was not messing around with tests anymore. It quickly adopted new guidelines on employment testing procedures. It did what any self-respecting agency would do when it saw a statute it didn't like. It defined the terms as restrictively as possible. A professionally developed ability test was now defined as a test which fairly measured the knowledge or skill required for a particular job or class of jobs. The test needed to align with the specific job the employee held. Period. This guideline would remain a serious chink in Duke Power's armor throughout the rest of the case. On September the 21st, 1966, the EEOC issued an administrative decision which found there was reasonable cause that Duke Power was in violation of Title VII by its educational and test battery requirements. Because Duke Power's educational requirements were not tailored to specific jobs, there was no business justification for them. With the EEOC now at their back, the Griggs plaintiffs filed a class action lawsuit in the Middle District of North Carolina. Thirteen of the 14 employees ultimately joined the lawsuit. The only employee who didn't join had been promoted to a learner in the coal department two months before. Willie Griggs agreed to become the lead plaintiff because he was the youngest and thought he had the least to lose should Duke Power decide to retaliate against the workers for filing a lawsuit. He was 32 years old and had only completed 10th grade. Already married with four children, he had applied to work for Duke Power in 1963. George Ferguson and his litigation team at Duke Power quickly filed an answer to the complaint and denied any intent to discriminate against its workers. Six months later, to cover his bases, Ferguson also hired an expert, Dr. Danny Moffey, to conduct a validation test of Duke Power's test battery. Things did not go as well as he hoped. Dr. Moffey's study found that the correlations between the tests and job performance for all job levels were small and not statistically significant, and advised further controlled studies. If the EEOC's interpretation of ability tests was correct, Ferguson's case was in serious trouble. Given the novel legal issues and the unfavorable testing from Dr. Moffey, the parties made several efforts to settle the case before trial. These efforts proved largely unsuccessful. 
Robert Belton and Julius Chambers played hardball and insisted that Duke Power completely exempt the janitors from the company's educational and testing requirements, provide job training to the coal handling and inside jobs, and report to them for two years on their progress in hiring and promoting African-American workers. High-ranking officials at Duke Power rejected these terms outright. This would be a total win for the plaintiffs, and the company would be practically admitting it was guilty of discrimination when its tests were objective and neutral. The company also really felt like it had done nothing wrong. As things got more contentious, George Ferguson even joked that he needed more practice with the Supreme Court. These words would turn out to be prophetic, to say the least. Sometimes you get what you hope for. Although settlement talks were unproductive, both sides remained cordial during pretrial proceedings. In his book, The Crusade for Equality in the Workplace, Robert Belton explains that the case really did not involve the trench warfare he had encountered in other cases. The parties exchanged discovery and deposed the plaintiffs and company witnesses. Plaintiffs also enlisted the help of their own testing expert, Dr. Robert Thorndike of Columbia University, to counter Duke Power's expert. The trial began on Tuesday, February the 6th, 1968. It was a dark week for America. On February the 8th, only 260 miles away in Orangeburg, South Carolina, the State Highway Patrol opened fire on 200 protesters who had demonstrated against continued racial segregation at South Carolina State University. 27 people were shot, many from behind as they tried to flee, and three African Americans were killed. It was a reminder of the continued rot of segregation, and the stakes could not be higher. Judge Eugene A. Gordon was brought in to handle the Griggs case as a bench trial. He would determine both the law and the facts. Lyndon B. Johnson had appointed him to the federal bench in 1964, less than a month before Title VII passed. Like Willie Boyd, Judge Gordon had grown up in North Carolina with a family of tobacco farmers. He received his law degree from Duke University in 1941, which had taken its name, interestingly enough, from the same Duke family which also ran Duke Power. Judge Gordon was not an unfavorable judge for plaintiffs. He would go on to make several important desegregation orders at the end of the 1960s. However, in this case, Judge Gordon thought the plaintiffs were pushing Title VII to the stratosphere. Plaintiffs had a number of challenges, particularly establishing a viable theory of discrimination that did not include intent. They also needed to show that the EEOC's interpretation of professionally developed ability tests was correct. Julius Chambers and Robert Belton wished to rely on a previous case they had recently worked on, Quarles v. Philip Morris, Inc., in which a district court had found that the present effects of past discriminatory seniority policies were actionable under Title VII. They hoped to make an end run around Title VII's intent requirement by showing Duke Power's pre-1965 intentional discrimination had led to discriminatory effects which froze black employees into the company's labor department. However, upon objections from Duke Power's attorney, George Ferguson, Judge Gordon prohibited substantive discussion about the company's actions which occurred prior to 1965. Because the case was heard as a bench trial without a jury, both sides waived opening arguments, and much of the usual court drama was discarded. Julius Chambers and Robert Belton quickly decided not to call any of the plaintiffs as live witnesses. Instead, their case-in-chief would introduce the transcripts from plaintiffs' depositions, the 1966 EEOC guidelines on testing, and the Wonderlick and Bennett mechanical test manuals. The facts at trial showed that a high school education was not really necessary to perform work at the steam station. Although Duke Power's vice president of production, A.C. Thies, testified that the educational requirement was needed to upgrade the workforce for the nuclear age and retain employees who could be promoted, there were a lot of employees who did not have these credentials. For example, only three of nine whites in coal handling had a high school education, and less than half of whites in maintenance had degrees. If a high school education was really necessary for the business, how could it function at these levels? There were also some inconsistencies between Thies and Duke Power's expert, Dr. Moffey. Dr. Moffey testified that the company had adopted the testing procedures to determine whether the individual had the aptitude of a high school graduate, not because it was tailored to the specific job. However, Thies, upon being questioned, noted he thought the tests were actually easier than passing high school, and he believed Duke Power was bending over backwards by allowing the laborers to take the test in lieu of a diploma. He also opined 
that non-high school educated individuals performed quite well on the inside jobs, and he found some high schoolers were incompetent. The defense seemed to be talking in different directions. When Belton went to call his own expert witness, he ran into a serious problem. His expert, Dr. Robert Thorndike, was nowhere to be found. Because the case had been continued several times, Dr. Thorndike was suddenly unavailable. In a world without email, he may as well have been on the moon. Judge Gordon was very displeased by all of this, and informed Belton that he had better find his expert, and quickly. He did not want the LDF's expert running the schedule of his court. George Ferguson, not wanting to waste any more of his witnesses' time, agreed to allow plaintiff to bring his expert on to the stand whenever he could be reached or found, just so long as the trial could proceed as scheduled. Belton was happy with this concession, and after the first day of trial and receiving additional veiled and not-so-veiled threats from the judge, quickly jetted to New York to track Dr. Thorndike down. However, he was eventually required to enlist an entirely new expert at the last minute, Dr. Richard Barrett, an industrial psychologist from Western Reserve University. It was a stroke of luck. Dr. Barrett was exceptionally familiar with the tests used by Duke Power and had previously performed studies with the Ford Foundation examining ethnic group performance on standardized tests. Dr. Barrett later testified on February the 9th, 1968, that Duke Power had not prepared any validation studies for its tests and had adopted its test battery without any need to identify the critical skills of the specific job positions. Furthermore, because the company did not have any job descriptions, the company process in selecting the Wonderlick and Bennett mechanical tests were completely unmoored from professionally acceptable personnel selection standards. At one point, George Ferguson asked Dr. Barrett on the stand whether minorities should be required to raise their standards because industry could not afford to relinquish their standards in the competitive work of today. Belton objected to the question which the court sustained. The trial ended. The court accepted post-trial arguments on June the 28th, 1968. The parties then waited three months before Judge Gordon issued his opinion on September the 30th, 1968. It was a complete, unmitigated disaster for the Griggs plaintiffs. The court reaffirmed that Title VII was only intended to apply to conduct after July 2nd, 1965. Since any intentional discrimination occurred before Title VII became effective, the court refused to consider any earlier conduct. Judge Gordon flatly rejected the contention in quarrels that present circumstances caused by past discrimination were covered by Title VII. There was no statutory language in the text which remotely supported that argument. Judge Gordon also found that the plaintiffs had failed to show Duke Power's hiring and promotional requirements mandating a high school education and intelligence tests were intended to discriminate based on race. To the contrary, at least since July 2, 1965, these requirements had been fairly and equally administered to both blacks and whites. The court was not going to prohibit employment policies, which prohibited an employer from upgrading its workforce for the modern age. Upgrading the workforce was a legitimate business purpose. Finally, the court also rejected the EEOC's interpretation of Title VII's ability test defense. Plaintiffs in the EEOC suggested that ability tests were legal only when they were developed to predict a person's ability to perform a particular job or group of jobs. However, Title VII did not use this language anywhere, nor did it seem to differentiate between types of tests. The legislative history of the Tower Amendment also suggested that Congress had intended to provide employers wide latitude with their testing. Duke Power developed its ability tests to improve its workforce in a racially neutral manner. That was enough. Judge Gordon dismissed the class action on the merits on October the 9th, 1968. George Ferguson and Duke Power no doubt felt vindicated by the strong opinion. Julius Chambers, Robert Belton, and the LDF made immediate plans to appeal to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia. It was at this point that the LDF's litigation team really began thinking outside the box. They became desperate. One of its employment law consultants at Columbia Law School, George Cooper, reached out to Robert Belton one day with a draft law review article he was working on with another academic colleague named Richard Sobel. Professor Cooper had graduated from Harvard's law school and was actively involved in several high-profile employment law cases dealing with seniority discrimination in employment. And he had an interesting idea 
which proposed an entirely new theory of discrimination. He didn't call it the disparate impact theory yet, but his article spoke of adverse effects and adverse impacts. He wanted to flip discrimination law upside down, instead of focusing on an intent-oriented approach to discrimination, which was subjective and hard to prove, he advocated for an effect-oriented approach, which was more objective. This was all music to the ears of the LDF, who had struggled to prove intent to the district court. So they enlisted Professor Cooper to write their appellate brief for the Griggs plaintiffs and try to save their case. The LDF drew a mixed appeals panel at the Fourth Circuit. Judges Herbert Borman, Albert Bryan, and Simon Sobolov. Judge Borman and Judge Bryan were not particularly sympathetic to civil rights cases. Judge Borman was a jurist from West Virginia. He had been appointed to the bench by President Eisenhower and was known as a conservative's conservative. Judge Bryan had received his law degree from the University of Virginia and was known as a strict constructionist, a legal philosophy which focuses on applying the law exactly as written. The LDF's imaginative interpretation of Title VII was unlikely to find a solid footing with him. Judge Sobolov, however, proved more open to the LDF's theories. Like Judge Borman, he was appointed to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals by President Eisenhower. However, his appointment was delayed for a year after some Southern senators came to believe he might be open to school desegregation. In his perspective, racism was morally and constitutionally untenable, and he was described as an activist in civil rights affairs working against school segregation, for an anti-lynching bill, and freedom of the press. The judges could not agree how to decide the appeal. As the most senior jurist, Judge Sobolov was initially charged with writing the opinion. However, he was overloaded with cases at the time, so he unloaded the opinion onto Judge Borman. Judge Borman then sat on the case five months after admitting it posed some rather difficult problems. He eventually circulated a draft opinion finding Duke Power's promotional policies were permitted under Title VII. Judge Bryan signed on to the decision the next day. The two judges then looked at Judge Sobolov to see if they could get a unanimous opinion here. But Judge Sobolov suddenly got cold feet. He waited several weeks and then said he needed to review the record again, much to Judge Borman's frustration. I mean, why even ask me to write the opinion, I'm sure he was thinking. Now, this is where things get really interesting. Sometimes, history decides to throw down a wild card. This is one of those times. Enter Judge John Butzner. He was the judge responsible for writing the Quarles opinion that everyone was arguing about, and he had recently been raised to the Fourth Circuit as a new appellate judge. He obviously thought his past discrimination present effects theory was the correct one, but wanted to push it a little further. He began whispering into Judge Sobolov's ear about a new law review article recently published by Professor Cooper in the Harvard Law Review about adverse impact discrimination. The fact the article was not published during oral arguments and that Professor Cooper had appeared of counsel for the Griggs plaintiffs and written their briefs did not seem to trouble him in the least. Judge Sobolov listened intently to all of this and then just began incorporating Professor Cooper's law review arguments into his dissenting opinion. Although no one knew it at the time, this dissent would soon become the law of the land. On January the 9th, 1970, the Fourth Circuit issued its opinion. Judge Borman and Judge Bryan affirmed most of the lower district court, but they had some twists. They overruled the district court's finding that Title VII did not encompass present and continuing effects of past discrimination. They adopted quarrels and found that the present effects of past discrimination were actionable in certain circumstances. The year 1955 was the critical dividing line for the case. It was at that time that the educational requirement had been first adopted by Duke Power. At least six of the plaintiffs, including Willie Boyd, had been discriminatorily hired into the segregated labor department before the education requirement took effect. White employees without high school educations were hired into the other departments and allowed to freely advance while the African-American employees had not. It would be inherently unfair to freeze those African Americans into their labor positions by adding an educational requirement after their hire. The employees who were hired after 1955, though, were flat out of luck. 
the court felt they began employment with their eyes wide open. They knew about the educational requirement, and it was equally applied to both whites and African Americans. Duke Power had shown that it had a genuine business purpose in mind when adopting the educational and testing requirements. Furthermore, it agreed with the district court that the EEOC incorrectly interpreted Title VII's testing defense. Judge Sobolov's dissent took direct aim at all of this reasoning. Although he concurred that the court was right to find discrimination had occurred with respect to the employees hired before 1955, he thought the court's reasoning as to the other plaintiffs would reduce Title VII to mellifluous but hollow rhetoric. Title VII really had two types of discrimination claims. Not only had Title VII prohibited overt discrimination in hiring and promotion, it also prohibited a second kind of discrimination, objective or neutral standards that favored whites but do not serve business needs. In a revolutionary, new legal argument, he sought to decouple intent completely from Title VII and noted, quote, the critical inquiry is business necessity, and if it cannot be shown that an employment practice which excludes blacks stems from legitimate needs, the practice must end, unquote. Judge Sobolov believed plaintiffs had shown African Americans were disparately impacted by the testing and educational requirements. It was obvious, wasn't it? Four years after the passage of Title VII, the Labor Department was all black, and the rest of the departments were lily-white. Although Duke Power professed its educational and testing requirements were necessary for its business, these claims were totally unsubstantiated by the record, where whites were able to perform their work in various positions without similar requirements. The court should not just take Duke Power's word and accept that any test created by a test designer was a professionally developed one. The test needed to be designed to fit the job. Although Judge Sobolov's stinging dissent helped cushion the blow, the LDF's second judicial defeat left them bruised and battered. They had now lost twice. There was vigorous debate whether to prepare a petition for certiorari and appeal the decision to the United States Supreme Court. The EEOC and the Justice Department both thought it was a bad idea. Professor Cooper, who had briefed the case, also advised a tactical retreat. The Fourth Circuit had adopted the Quarles' present effects of past discrimination theory, which would be useful in future cases. There was also some bad facts and a lack of statistical evidence that might complicate things on appeal. Additionally, it did not seem that Duke Power had chosen the educational requirements on a complete whim, the desirable jobs were pretty complex. Maybe Duke Power had some viable arguments. But Julius Chambers and Robert Belton wanted to make a stand. Judge Sobolov had thrown down the gauntlet. They needed to see the case through to the end. Jack Greenberg also thought that the idea of giving an IQ test to workers who wanted to be coal handlers was just absurd from a gut justice standpoint and had an undoubted discriminatory impact. After a short meeting in New York, the LDF decided to appeal the case to the Supreme Court on April the 9th, 1970. According to The Brethren by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong, the case was initially placed on the Supreme Court's dead list because Justice Warren Berger believed that the compromise decision had been a sensible one. Justice Berger had been nominated by President Nixon to take over Chief Justice Earl Warren's seat the previous year in May 1969. He was new and relatively unknown at the time. A typical law and order judge, with a strict constructionist philosophy, he also liked to view himself as a moderate. Another justice, William Brennan, had different plans in mind for the Griggs case. He was one of the court's liberal lions. Even though he had previously represented Duke Power and would have to recuse himself, he hoped the case would go against his former client. He convinced the other justices to take the case off life support and the dead list and have a discussion about it on May 22, 1970. It was a totally unexpected reversal, and I'm sure Duke Power, after hearing about all this, was thinking much like Caesar on the Ides of March and wondering, A2, Brennan, A2. Anyway, after some discussion, Justice Berger suddenly found himself liking the case more and more. According to some, he thought the Griggs case would give him an opportunity to counter his conservative image portrayal in the media and allow him to define Title VII in its first major case. Oral arguments were held right before the Christmas holidays on December the 14th, 1970. Jack Greenberg appeared for the plaintiffs, and George Ferguson argued for Duke Power. 
the Chamber of Commerce also made an appearance to request that the case be affirmed. After clarifying the record on several points, Jack Greenberg now claimed that the Wonderlick test was being used like Alibaba's open sesame incantation to decide who could do any job in the world. Testing needed to be related to particular jobs to mean anything at all and to prevent abuse. Justice Berger asked whether even tests in Maine and other states with a predominantly white population would have to discontinue their testing under plaintiff's theory. Greenberg explained that the key to their case was a showing of disproportionate impact. Plaintiffs would first need to show a disparity existed between African Americans and whites due to some policy. Then, a showing of business necessity would be required. During George Ferguson's argument, much of the time was spent on the testing safe harbor defense and the Tower Amendment. Ferguson argued that Duke Power's testing and educational requirements were adopted in good faith. He agreed that Duke Power's requirements needed to be based on a legitimate business purpose, but the company had conclusively shown it needed to improve its workforce. Its tests were professionally developed and equally administered. He asked that the case be affirmed. After a while, several justices began asking some very pointed questions to the parties. Justice Thurgood Marshall, who had previously worked with the LDF in his life before the Supreme Court, asked the Chamber of Commerce's representative what relationship the Wonderlick and Bennett mechanical tests had to coal handling. That seemed a little strange to him. He went further. What if the company imposed other educational requirements? What if they imposed a PhD requirement for coal handling? Would that be justified under the company's logic of attaining employees to move up the corporate ladder? I mean, what do you want here? Do you want to hire these janitors to become president of the company or what? Justice Berger also joined in and wondered whether a company could impose English language requirements for fruit pickers and farm workers in the Southwest when it wasn't related to the job. The absurdity began to appear obvious. The court's final decision was announced in less than three months on March the 8th, 1971. As previously said, the decision was unanimous. This was somewhat unexpected given the difficulties encountered below, but the final vote was 8-0. Justice Brennan recused himself, but I think we all know how he would have voted. The decision was very short, about 13 pages in the official Supreme Court reports. Justice Berger wrote the opinion for the court and relied heavily on the textual construction and legal arguments made by Judge Sobolov's dissent. It was a complete victory for the LDF and plaintiffs. In fact, it was better than a victory. The court went further than quarrels and recognized a completely new theory of discrimination which did not require subjective intent or equal treatment. Equal treatment, the court believed, was illusory in a world where minority groups like African Americans had long lived in inferior conditions due to segregated society and were not on a level playing field. Justice Berger then became rather mythic and analogized Duke Power's testing and educational requirements to one of Aesop's fables involving the fox and the stork. In the fable, a fox invites a stork to dinner and provides him a big bowl of soup. The stork, however, due to the condition of his beak, cannot drink from the saucer. Although an equal opportunity had been provided in this fable, it was an empty one. Justice Berger went on, quote, Title VII does not command that any person be hired simply because he was formerly the subject of discrimination or because he is a member of a minority group. What is required by Congress is the removal of artificial, arbitrary, and unnecessary barriers to employment when the barriers operate invidiously to discriminate on the basis of racial or other impermissible classifications. Congress has now required that the condition of the job seeker be taken into account. It has provided that the vessel in which the milk is offered be one all seekers can use." Unquote. The touchstone was now business necessity. If an employment practice operated to exclude African Americans and could not be shown to be related to job performance, then the practice needed to be eliminated. Here, Duke Power had not shown its educational and testing requirements bore any relationship to successful work performance. Quite the opposite. The record showed there were plenty of employees who had not completed high school and were able to successfully perform their work. The tests were adopted without meaningful study of their relationships to job performance. Although the court did not suggest Duke Power had a malicious intent in adopting its employment requirements, its policies operated as a built-in headwind for minority groups unrelated to measuring job capability 
and were illegal. The LDF could not believe the unanimous opinion. They were absolutely dumbstruck. Given Justice Berger's portrayal in the media, some LDF attorneys suspected the court did not really realize what it had just done. What had begun as a small case about testing requirements in Eden, North Carolina, had flowered into a world-changing event. The Supreme Court had created an entirely new theory of discrimination with an entirely new proof structure. It was incredible and miraculous, as unexpected as God forming mankind out of the dirt. Okay, I'm getting a little carried away here, but no doubt the ramifications of the opinion were, and still are, enormous. Initially, the testing industry was thrown into complete pandemonium, with some companies losing over half their business overnight. Over time, the disparate impact theory spread beyond testing. Litigation exploded. Every company policy imaginable now had to be re-examined to ensure that it was job-related and consistent with business necessity. It was a dynamic, structural change. Companies began to adopt affirmative action programs to cope and to ensure minority groups were sufficiently included. Even after courts realized just how radically the disparate impact theory could transform the employer-employee relationship and began chipping away at it in the 1980s, Congress reaffirmed and resurrected it in the Civil Rights Act of 1991. The theory remains as strong as ever and is still hotly contested today. As for the Griggs plaintiffs, after the victory in 1971, Willie Boyd and the other employees returned to Eden, where they finally received some relief. The educational and testing requirements were finally waived. Duke Power was ordered to promote laborers to vacant positions as they became available. There were some hiccups, however. Duke Power offered many of the plaintiffs a watchman position first, which most declined. It then eliminated this position. Lewis Hairston was promoted to test assistant in the laboratory, but he was then demoted back to the laborer department. Robert Belton assisted the employees in seeking additional relief from the courts, but Judge Gordon found that the discriminatory practices had been eliminated. Willie Griggs ultimately left Duke Power in the mid-1970s and never returned. However, through eight years of hard-fought litigation, most of the employees had gained increased promotional opportunity. Willie Boyd ended up becoming the first black supervisor at the Dan River Station over white men. He remained politically active, becoming the president of the Reedsville NAACP chapter until the late 1980s. Other employees have also noted that the Griggs lawsuit has improved their quality of life and most retired from Duke Power, having spent the rest of their lives there. On the 10-year anniversary of the EEOC, Willie Griggs and Willie Boyd were flown to Atlanta to meet the staff because their case had meant so much to so many people. They did not start their case thinking they would radically transform the country. They just wanted a crack at the better jobs. Although their case is often forgotten by the general public, it opened up jobs and employment opportunities to untold millions of African Americans and other minority groups, which would not have been possible with an intent-based discrimination framework. For that reason, Griggs v. Duke Power Company is worth continued examination. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will see you next time on Employment Law Legends. Thank you.